And we, have, we are on the other side of our study in the book of Romans. And we've covered half the material, and here we go on the downhill side. We took, we took I think, three weeks to preach through Romans chapter number 8. And today, I'm going to take a lengthier passage of Scripture. But we're going to cover all of Romans chapter 9. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is I'm excited to get to Romans chapter 10 because we're coming up to our missions conference and Romans chapter 10 talks about whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. It talks about how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel and it says how shall they hear on him in whom they've not believed and how shall they hear without a preacher. So we're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks. But the other reason we're looking at Romans chapter 9 is because in one week is because really it's a very dense chapter that covers some very important doctrinal material. How many of you ever studied Romans chapter nine before? Okay, it's a it's a heavy chapter. It's it gets into some complicated issues. It's difficult, and I've got to be honest with you. Not only have I never preached through Romans chapter nine, I cannot think of a single time. In, well, I guess, how many, how old was I when I was conscious in church? So probably in the last 30 plus years, I can't think of a time I've ever heard somebody preach this in a, in a sermon. So it's, but it's an important passage. And I'm personally very committed to verse by verse expositional preaching. And so when we come to a difficult chapter, I think it's important that we dive head in. And we don't pretend that we can understand everything. When you come to a difficult passage of Scripture, you've always got to have some humility about it. You've always got to have a little humility that says that, remember last week I said that God has peeled the curtain of his glory back just a little bit? Well, he opens it just a little bit more in Romans chapter 9. And if you were to open it any further, I'm not sure we could handle it. So anyway, I say all that to... Uh, introduce this topic. Romans chapter 9 addresses the topic of the chosen people of God. The chosen people of God. So I'd encourage you, I, I promise I will get to some application, but some of this message is going to be a bit like a Bible study. So uh, just follow along with me. Pick it up with me in verse number 1 of Romans chapter 9 and see how the Apostle Paul begins. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Interesting opening, isn't it? He says that what I'm about to say, I really mean. This isn't an exaggeration. This isn't, uh, this isn't something that I'm just, uh, I, I'm just saying so you'll think highly of me. He says, this is how I truly feel. Look at verse number two. What is it, Paul? Well, he says, I have this great heaviness. My heart is heavy. It's burdened. I have a great heaviness and a continual sorrow in my heart. Notice the heart of the apostle. This is really important, I think, in framing this passage. The heart of the apostle. He's sorrowful. He's burdened. He's just so concerned. Well, about what? About this. He says, For I could wish that myself were a 
cursed from Christ for my, what's the word? Brethren. So now he's not speaking about the brethren in the church. He's speaking about his kinsmen according to the flesh. Who's he speaking of? He's, what, he's literally speaking of his ethnic people, Israel. He's speaking of the Jewish people. And he says to we, to, to, he says to us, he says to those that, are, that, that would read this at the time, he says, I am so sorrowful over my people. My people. Why, Paul? Because they've rejected the Messiah. He says, in the whole point of Paul's broken heart, the background to this passage you see in your introduction, the background of the passage is the Jewish people corporately. Now, not every individual Jewish person. After all, Paul himself was a Jew who had believed in the Messiah. And there were many Jewish believers in the church. But as a corporate people, as the people of Israel, they had rejected Jesus as their Savior. He says in verse 4, these are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. Do you remember we studied about this in the last few weeks? The adoption, the glory, the covenants. He said, all of these promises I was, I've been telling you, the church about, all these promises I've been telling you about, who did they belong to first? The Israelites. They belong to Israel but they've rejected. Well, he says, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers. And then, not only that, but not only are these this people Israel, not only did they, were they given these wonderful words of God, but they were given Jesus himself. He says, concerning the flesh, in other words, how did Christ get here? What was the human vehicle God used to bring us Messiah. It was the nation of Israel. In fact, that was the purpose of God choosing Israel. God chose Israel. If you study the Old Testament, God chose Israel not for individual salvation. We're going to get to that. This is really important. When God chose Israel, he wasn't saying, okay, well, you're Jewish, so now automatically you're saved and belong to me. No. He chose Israel as a corporate body to reflect his glory, to bring Messiah. And he told Abraham that in him he would bless all the nations. In fact, this is our missionary God in the Old Testament, calling on, this is a key word, calling an elect people, a chosen people, Israel, to be a light to the Gentiles. But now, just when all of the promises came to fulfillment in Christ, what did the people as a nation do? They rejected Christ. They rejected him. And he says, and to you came, concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. You see, there's some very important questions that are answered not only in chapter 9, but in chapter 9, 10, and 11. It's vitally important that we put this passage in the context of the book of Romans. As we, do you remember what we've studied so far? 
We've studied justification. We've studied sanctification. We've studied glorification. Well, now there's this tension that has happened in the, in the church because the church is now made up of both Gentiles and Jews. Are you, are you with me so far? I promise you. Like I said, this is going to be some difficult stuff, so if you lose me now, well, you just get comfortable, close your eyes, take a nap, because if you lose me now, it's, you miss it all. So I, I know I'm just asking you to give me a little extra right up front so we can set this up, because it's, you will, at some point in your life, your view on this passage, if you're a Christian and you take the Bible seriously, at some point in your Christian life, your view of the very nature of God will be challenged with this passage. So it's very crucial. So in the church, one of the things that we need to understand is how intense this problem between Jews and Gentiles was. In fact, we, if you were in the adult Bible study this morning, we actually looked at this a little bit. Because Paul said that he was chosen to bring the gospel to what group of people? To the Gentiles. And so at the end of Paul's ministry, he comes back to Jerusalem. And first of all, he brings a Gentile who had been circumcised into the outward court of the temple. Do you know what that does to the Jewish, what the Jewish people's reaction to that is? It's literally, we are going to kill you. I'm not exaggerating. They literally said, Paul, you are going to die. Why? Because he taught that Gentiles were now a part of God's people. And to a Pharisaical first century Jew, that was the, that is blasphemy of blasphemies. They had so much falsely, they had so much falsely attributed to their status as, as an ethnic group that they could not imagine that this door would be open to the Gentiles. And so now Paul is addressing this controversy in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he answers some important questions. I put them in the introduction. So then, if this is true, Paul, if Gentiles can really, uh, if, if Gentiles can really be a part of God's people, then what happens to the Jews' status? What's, what about the Jews? Are they still the chosen people of God? Don't answer the question, because we've got to get there. We'll get there after our mission's emphasis. But that's going to be answered in chapter 11. Well, but then, Paul, if this is true, how could Gentiles, considering everything that was promised in the Old Testament, how could Gentiles now be the people of God? And then most importantly for you, and most importantly for me, he answers this very important question. How can I know if I belong to the chosen, elect people of God? That's the most important question that this passage answers. Now you need to note, when we get into this idea of choosing and who God chooses, I've already hinted at it uh, quite obviously, there is a difference between corporate election versus individual election. That God choose, sometimes in the Bible, God chose individuals. God chose Abraham as the individual. But then he chose the descendants of Abraham as a corporate group. There's a difference between individual and corporate election. And by election, we simply mean choosing. 
So let's get into the meat of the passage here. If you'd open your notes to the centerfold, we'll look at the, at the first point, and we saw it when we read verses 1 through 5. Now, first of all, God has a chosen or elect people. That's, that is the people we spoke about in the first five verses. That is Israel. If you study the Old Testament, the, the, it basically goes like this. Abraham, I'm going to raise up a great people from you. All of the people that are born into that lineage, they receive these promises. We know them as the people of Israel. But what happened? Interestingly enough, the chosen people eventually, as a group, rejected Christ as their Messiah. The chosen group rejects Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus says, as Paul did, well, now I'm going to open this up where I always intended to a larger group. Now, speaking of this, I think it's very important that we, that we, we made note of it, the heart of, the heart of Paul. Paul is sorrowful about this. He's not, he's not happy about this. Paul is not saying, well, God chose this from before the foundation of the world. They had no choice in the matter, so I'm just going to celebrate God's election. No, that is not the heart. The heart of Paul is that he would want more of God's chosen people to come into the kingdom. He would want more of the Jewish people to not miss out. In fact, it's the same heart of Jesus. Look, I put on your handout Matthew 23, 37. This is a really important passage. As Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem, look what he says to them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killest the prophets and stoneth them which are sent unto thee. What is he recounting there? He's recounting the, the repeated behavior where the Jews are just rejecting the prophets. Now they're going to reject Christ. Now look what Jesus says his desire for these people is. Look at the desire. How often would I have what? What is the desire of Christ for the, for the people of Israel? says, my desire is to gather you to myself as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And then the statement, and ye what? Would not. And ye would not. There is a willful, a completely willful rejection of the God who desires to bring them in to his as part of his true people. So, number one, God has chosen an elect, has a chosen elect people. But now, notice this. This is important as we move on to this next section. God sets the conditions of election. God determines how a person gets to be a part of his chosen group. It is God's decision, not our decision. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Follow, follow the thinking. Verse number six. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Do you understand that statement there? It's okay to say no, because I didn't at first, at first glance either. <laughs> I was like, what is he saying? The point here is this. They would say, well, wait a minute. If God had a chosen people and then they rejected him, then is God, does God's word have no effect? No. Paul says there's a deeper meaning behind all of this. 
It's not that God's word didn't take effect. He says this, for they are not all Israel, which are what? Of Israel. In other words, this, mark it down, it's in your notes, bloodline, bloodline did not guarantee that you are truly part of God's chosen people. You see that there? The bloodline did not guarantee that you were part of God's chosen people. In fact, he says, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Now, if you were, if you were Paul just 40 years earlier and someone had said this to you, what would your reaction have been? Like rage. Rage. In fact, this is what Jesus taught people like Paul. Jesus said to people like Paul, he said, oh, you think you're of your father Abraham? Jesus said, you're actually of your father the devil. You study the teachings of Jesus. He's speaking to people that think, well, I'm in Abraham. My bloodline secures my standing before God. And Jesus says, oh, really? Because your father is not Abraham. And they're like, they're like well, who do you are? And who do you think you are? Jesus says, well, let me tell you, before Abraham was, I am. I get to determine who my people are. In fact, he gives us an illustration. He uses Isaac and Jacob and Esau to represent what it truly means to be part of God's chosen people. Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Now, Abraham, Abraham had two sons. This is a little Bible trivia. You might want to take notes. Abraham had two sons. What were their names? Ishmael and Isaac. Now, how many of them, to use biblical language, how many of those two sons came from the loins of Abraham? Not a trick question, exactly. They both did. But how many of them were part of God's chosen people? How many of the two sons? Just one, Isaac. Well, well, why is that? Why is that? Because God said it would be that way. What God is doing here, he's teaching the, what Paul is doing is teaching the Jews that God determines how his salvation plan works. God determines how all this unfolds. He says, so, so Isaac, God determined that the, the line would come through Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons. What were their names? Esau and Jacob. Same father, same mother. They're also in the loins of Abraham. But through how many of those sons? Did God choose? Just one. What is the point of all this? God is, Paul is setting the terms that God decides how this is going to work. It's Jews, the Jews of the time are thinking, well, we've got this all figured out. So Paul kind of puts a little trivia question to him like Jesus would. Really, if it's all about blood, then how come Esau wasn't a part of it? If it's all about the blood, how come Esau didn't get to be a part of it? God decided where, the, then Jacob has how many sons? We're going, we're, we're, now we're really, we're really testing it here. Now, Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. Twelve. We can, can, you, can you not change that verse for me? Go back, thanks. Um, he has twelve sons. And of those twelve sons, how many of those get to be in the bloodline of the chosen people? How many? All of them. All of them. They all are. They are the 12 tribes 
of the people of Israel. I've been setting you up all along, right? You're like, well, it's like, it's like one of those jokes, you know, say, what is it, say this word so many times, we get you to say the wrong one at the end. No, it's literally, he, well, how come all 12 of them get to be a part of it? How come? Because it's not because of the bloodline. What was that? that thank you, Dennis. You've got it. How come? God said so. Because God said so. And he's proving to the Jews in this passage, you think you've got this all worked out. You think you get to decide. But God didn't always accept, sometimes he did accept the bloodline, sometimes he didn't. But why did God do that? Because God was making a point that he sets the terms of election. He sets the terms of who is chosen. So, uh, what verse did I leave off on? Verse 7. Neither, neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the what? Promise. Isaac was a miraculous birth. It was a picture of, of, of God doing something that could not be done through human effort. What has Paul been spending eight chapters proving? That our salvation, is it of our own works? No, he spent eight chapters proving that this is all of faith through the work of God. Isaac is another example of that. Paul, by the way, makes the same argument in Galatians chapter number four. So you thread all these passages together, which we don't have time to do this morning, but that's for further study. Now, for this, nine, verse nine now, for this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this. Paul says this isn't the only example. It's not just Isaac, but not only this, but when Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife, also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or any evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of what? Works. Not of works, but of him that calleth. The idea of calling in this passage is naming. He names who his, uh, he names who his people are. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the, long, the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I, what's it say? Many people have stumbled at verse number 13. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Do you know, does anybody know where this is a reference to? It's not to the book of Genesis, it's to the book of Malachi. And I, I put the reference incorrectly there, it's actually Malachi 1, there is no Malachi 9. And we don't need to look at it, but you'll find this Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, is not speaking about the man Jacob. And it's not speaking about the man Esau. It's speaking to the children of Israel. In Malachi, Jacob had been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. Esau had been dead for hundreds of years before God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The point is this, that God set his, and that word hate is used in the Bible as two extremes, right? It's not hatred like I wish you would die. It's in opposition. You find this all throughout biblical literature. Just like Jesus said, if any man will come after me and what? 
hate not his father and mother, neither can he be my disciple. Same usage of the word. There's one group of people in Jacob who are the Israelites who are the loved. And then there's the hated people, the descendants of Esau, in opposition to that. Now, nowhere in this passage does it ever say that people have no choice in which group they are a part of. In fact, you'll never find that. Even in the Old Testament, there were descendants of other people that were brought into the nation of Israel. In fact, some of them are very famous. One is in the lineage of Jesus, and actually there's two. There's Rahab the harlot. Do we remember her? Rahab the harlot in Jericho. She did not belong to the descendants of Jacob, yet she, was, she came to faith in the people of God, and guess what? Despite her bloodline, she became a part of the elect people of God. Not only, not only did uh, Rahab, but so did Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. This woman was not descended from the bloodline, but by turning to the truth of Messiah, or not Messiah, but she didn't know Messiah yet, but turning to the truth of Israel, who would bring Messiah, she became part of the elect people of God. Not only that, it doesn't stop there. There's a famous kind of a martyr in the Old Testament. His name was Uriah, who remembers him. Uriah was a faithful man, but he was not born in the bloodline. He was born a Hittite. So when we speak about this, this Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, the point is God had a people that were his chosen people as a group. But just because you're in the bloodline didn't mean you got it all. And just because you were outside of the bloodline didn't mean you missed it all. What was the individual heart of the person? Now, so a few things we saw here just to kind of recap in your notes. Isaac, Jacob, and Esau represent the true election of believers. Faith in the promise. Remember, who is Paul arguing against? He's arguing against the Jews who were trusting in their bloodline. But not only that, but he says it's apart from works. Not only were these people trusting in their bloodline, they said, well, we're the chosen people of God because of our blood. No, it doesn't work that way. Oh, yeah? Well, we're the chosen people of God because we keep the law. Paul said, eh, doesn't work that way either. Doesn't work that way either. So, what we find here is that God sets the conditions to the, to the person that says, well, and you know what? This wasn't just a problem in the first century. It's not just the Pharisees who said, well, we think this is how it ought to work. There are still people today that think they ought to set the terms for who gets to be God's chosen people and who doesn't. There are people that will come and they will say, well, you know what? I, I'm a very good person, and I think that God should, should allow me to be part of his people because I'm a good person. To which the Apostle Paul would say, nah, it doesn't work that way. There's other people who say, oh yeah, well, I am part of a family that has always been in this religion or this church, and because of that, I feel that I am secure as part of the elect people of God. And Paul says, eh, it doesn't work that way either. Well, how does it work? He's going to conclude with it at the end. But he's got a couple more points to make. So we move on. So not only has God a chosen elect people who then rejected him, and God sets the conditions of election, but now, thirdly, 
This is a powerful part of the passage. God will be glorified regardless of people's reception or rejection of him. This is amazing. God will get the glory in the end. Whether people are, choose to be a part of his plan or choose to go against his plan, God will get the glory. Look at verse number 14. Now there's an accusation. Paul assumes that an accusation is made in verse number 14. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now the question when you come to verse 14 is Paul assumes that someone is making this argument. The question would be, who does Paul assume is challenging the argument? Who is Paul assuming would say God is unrighteous? Well, there are some people who inaccurately say, well, it would be the Esau people, right? Because it just said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Well, well then, the God is unrighteous. It makes no sense because that is not who Paul is referring to in the overall passage. Paul is referring to, Don, I heard you say it. He's addressing this to the Jews. The whole context is the Jews. It's the Jewish, it's the Jewish system that is answering back and saying, well, let me tell you what, Paul, if it really works that way, then God is unrighteous because he promised that we would get to be the chosen people. God is unrighteous in, 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 in letting other people in, or God is unrighteous in, in, in their opinion, changing the terms on this. And then Paul says this, oh, really, God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have what? Mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Some people interpret this in the negative. And you can do that if you want, but in harmonizing all of the scriptures, I would never, and people would say, look at this, I'll interpret this in the negative. And so God doesn't want to have mercy on people. I think the point is actually the opposite. He says to these Jewish people, if God chooses, and you'll find other references to this in the scripture, if God chooses, if God chooses to show mercy, if God chooses to show mercy on the Gentiles, he is allowed to do that. You remember Jonah? Well, I can't believe you would. I knew it, God. You've got to read the story of Jonah. He preaches to all these people in this wicked land of Nineveh. And they all get saved. I mean, they all become believers. And Jonah says to God, I knew this would happen. You sent me here to preach to these people. They all repented. And he misses the whole point that God's desire, yes, there were prophets of judgment. But Jonah, you weren't just a prophet of judgment. You were the prophet of mercy. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16, so then to the, to the arrogant, pharisaical people of the day, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Can you hear the argument? Back to verse 16, please. Can you hear the argument? Well, wait a minute. These people, they, I mean, we've been keeping the law for thousands of years. We've been, keeping the, the, we've been keeping the law for all this time. It's kind of like the parable Jesus gave. Can you imagine if you worked hard all day long, you agreed for certain wages, and you worked all day long? I mean, you put in a 12-hour day, and you agreed to $100 for the day. And then, just before the sun is setting, 
just before the sun was setting, five o'clock in the evening, there's a little bit of work left to do. And the master says, I need some more workers. And he looks over here at this group, and you guys have been working all day long. You've been working all day really hard, and you agreed to how much for the day? $100. And I come over here, and he says, hey, guys, there's still work to do. There's about two hours of work left. Would you come? If you come, I will pay you $100. I'll pay you $100. And Jesus says to this group over here, why are you so angry that I've been so good to these people? You see, I think the context, and again, you may interpret this passage differently than me. Join the club. It's been, it's been debated for a thousand years, okay, since Augustine. That's longer than a thousand years, by the way. So anyway, it's been debated for a really long time. So, and that's okay. We're still friends. We still love Jesus. I have, I have good believer friends that disagree on this passage. But I'm just saying, knowing the overall character of God, I could look at this passage and I could interpret it in the negative or I could interpret it in the positive, and I think both are, are, I can see how people do both. But knowing what I know about what the scriptures say, why would I, why would I want to interpret it in the negative? Right? But it does, there are some questions though. So here's one for instance. So, so these people, back in your notes, the accusation, well, God is unrighteous. It's, not, it's just like Jesus' parable about the workers. That's not fair that we would work so hard. Jesus says it's not about the one who desires, the one who runs. It's all about the one who wants to show what? It's all about the one who's going to show the mercy. For the scripture said unto Pharaoh. Now here's one that didn't get mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. What verse is that? 17? I've got to find my place. Verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Interesting here, the Jewish rejectors of Jesus are being compared to whom? How would that have hit? How would that arrow have landed? The, the, the Jewish people who considered themselves the chosen of God are now, he's saying, I've actually, by my mercy, by, by the actions of Christ, by the, the, the coming of Jesus, the ones who rejected Jesus, who were supposed to be of the chosen people of God, they are, their hearts are being hardened. Just like whose heart was hardened? Pharaoh's. You read the story in the Old Testament, it's like, Interesting. Moses says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you know the song? Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. All right, we won't do that. But Pharaoh says, no. And it's interesting. The Bible talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And it talks about God hardening the heart. And I think the point is here, we'll see this reference later, that God says, I'm going to send the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to be a stumbling block. The Messiah is going to come. And those who reject him, their hearts are going to be hardened unto judgment. And those who receive them, their hearts are going to be softened and they're going to find mercy. So, and, and the, Jewish believers, uh, the Jewish unbelievers today would say, well, that's not right. We think it should be us. And God says, you don't get to make that decision. I've made that decision to show mercy. Now, 
I don't believe you'll ever find a passage that explicitly teaches that God forces that decision on anyone. Now, there's a second accusation. The first, they say, well, God is unrighteous. The second accusation, oh, yeah? Well, then why are we judged if God's will is still accomplished? Interesting. Look with me in verse number um, verse number 19. Thou wilt say then unto me. Paul's like, I know you've got more arguments in you. Well, then why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, well, then why does God care who accepts him or who rejects him, who's hardened or who's not? Why, why would God judge me? Because after all, if God is sovereign, he's even going to take my rejection and use it for his glory. So if God really gets the glory in any way, then why am I even accountable? And Paul again answers saying, God is sovereign. Look what he says. He says in verse number um, 20, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Do we have the right to say to God, Well, I don't like your plan. I don't like your plan for saving the world. I don't like your plan for how you've worked with Israel. And God says, well, who are you? Who are you to, to say that to God? He's the one that sets the rules. He's the one that forms things out of the clay. In fact, verse number 21, hath the potter, hath the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. It's interesting. If you study that in the, in the Old Testament, God takes the lump. It's being, fashioned, it's being fashioned, and it's just not right. So what's he do with it? Yeah, he remakes, he remakes it again. He does it again. Now listen. So, verse number, where did I leave off? 22. So, so, God, why do you put up with this? Why do you put up with this whole group of unbelievers? You know they're rejecting you. You know, you, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets. How long I would have gathered you. God, why do you put up with this then? Why do you allow people to reject you? Well, what if, verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. I think the point here is this. That God has two groups of people. There are two groups of people. There is, there is an elect, there is an elect group who have come to Christ by faith, and they have been prepared for eternal glory. And then there is a group that have been elected unto judgment. And because of their rejection of Christ, they have been prepared for eternal destruction. The, what the passage never says is how a person, yet anyway, what the passage has never said yet, is how a person 
gets into one of those groups or the other. There are some people that say, well, God just randomly decides who gets to be in one group, who gets to be in the other. I don't believe that squares up with the rest of Scripture. I don't believe it even squares up with how this passage is going to conclude. I don't think it squares up with Paul's heart. In fact, you'll find in the book, in the book of John when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and he says, you're of your father, the devil. He's speaking to this whole group of Pharisees. We know from Bible history that many of that group of Pharisees would eventually what? Do you know? Many of them would become believers. At that point in their life, those Pharisees belong to which group? They belong to the children of the devil. But they would have opportunity to be translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's own son. But Jesus said, the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That, that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And Paul says, I want these people to become believers. At the beginning of the passage, he even opens it in chapter 11. Or chapter 10, he says the same thing. I want them to be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. Why would he pray? My heart's to God in prayer to Israel is that they be saved. Because it is God gives us enough grace to make the choice. Will I accept Jesus Christ or will I reject? Those who accept Christ are part of the elect corporate group, the church of the living God, made up of Jews and Gentiles. Those who reject, well, why does God put up with the rejectors? Well, I think two reasons. One, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, giving them, all, giving them as long as possible to repent. Then secondly, even if they don't repent, God will still be glorified. It's painful to say this, but even in their destruction. That's what Scripture says. You see, men and women have, have only one destiny, and that is to glorify our Creator. The only destiny we have is to glorify our Creator. We will either glorify Him through His salvation of us, or we will glorify Him through His judgment of us. The question is, again, how do I know that I am a part of that elect group? God displays His power against the unbeliever for His glory, and God displays His glory in the believer for His glory. Verse 24, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. I hope you're still seeing the corporate nature of this calling. And now, and by the way, if you haven't, well, moving right along. Verse 25. I, oh, I will, I will clarify this. If you struggled this passage before, and you've heard people teach it, teach on it, you, it might sound to you like I'm teaching something new or different. The fact is, there have been multiple schools of thought on this passage for generations, and I'm just giving you, this is, none of this is original to me. This is a long-standing interpretation of Romans chapter 9. I think that's important for us all to understand. Now, let's look at this final part, which is my favorite. God is inviting all people into his elect family. I believe this is the purpose of the passage. This gets us ready for our missionary emphasis that comes in chapter 10, that God's plan is to invite all people into this elect family. Verse 24, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Verse 25, 
as he saith also in, that's Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people. The family has been expanded. There's a new elect people. Verse 26, And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, oh, I missed something in verse 25. Look back. I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. That, That Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, it's answered with this passage here. That the ones who were were thought of as the non-beloved, now they get to be the loved ones because the family has expanded. The elect group has expanded. And it, verse 26, it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. You see, there's an opportunity for those who are not the people of God to become the people of God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. In other words, the true people of God are the remnant of faithful Israel, and they are the company of Gentile believers. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom, and we had been made like unto Gomorrah. Here you go. What shall we say then? In other words, let's summarize. Let's summarize. What shall we say then? The whole argument, where we began, Jews not happy that Gentiles are a part of it. How does Paul summarize his argument? What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness, but they don't keep the law, but they eat the pork, but they dress funny, but they they don't go to temple. How could they be the chosen of God? It's not up to you. If I'll show mercy to who I want to show mercy to. The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness. Well, how did they get it? Was it by blood? No, it was by God's sovereign decree that you have access to righteousness by what? What God has has sovereignly decreed is that Jesus is the chosen one. It's not about being in Abraham, it's being about, about being in Jesus. And we are in Jesus by faith. And we get his righteousness by faith, not by our works and not by our identity. That was God's sovereign decree. God's sovereign decree is that salvation is entirely by grace through faith. But Israel, oh Israel, which followed after the law. I mean, they kept the law, but they have not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith. They would not put their faith in their Messiah automatically excluding themselves from the elect group of God. But those who will put their faith in Jesus Messiah become a part of the elect group, the elect family of God. Wherefore, because they sought it by faith, not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, 
And whosoever believeth, isn't it interesting that there's a whosoever there? But whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Anyone, Jesus comes. He's the promise. He's in Zion. He's in Jerusalem. But there are some that say, no, I've got to save myself. It's my bloodline. It's my law keeping. It's my obedience. Jesus blows that whole system up. And Jesus says, no, it's not by any of that. It's by faith in me. And those who trust in themselves, they stumble at the message of the gospel. And by the way, they still do today. Those who trust, we who tr if we trust in ourselves, then Christ, we just trip over him and stumble and fall. But oh, whoever believes, whoever will believe in Christ, you can have the confidence that you are the people of God. Jesus put it this way. He said this. He said, for God so loved the world, in John chapter 3, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, not to say, ha, ha, there's the stumbling block. Ha, ha, you tripped over it, didn't you? That wasn't the purpose. But that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. How can you be sure? How can I be sure that I am a part? Is it because God forced me against my will? No, it's what the scriptures say. That the offer is put to me. Will I accept or reject Messiah? If I reject Messiah Jesus, my heart will be hardened toward destruction. If I accept Messiah Jesus, my heart will be softened and received to mercy. And I will join the company of the elect, the redeemed, the chosen church of the living God. That's the message, I believe, of Romans chapter 9. And with it, we must take away this application. Listen, every single person you speak with, every single person you encounter, is a part, right now, in real time and space, every person you speak to is a part of one of those groups. They are either on the wheel, being fitted for destruction, or they are on the wheel being fitted for life. We have short window of time whereby to preach and proclaim the gospel. God's patience, the Bible says, is running out. There will come a point when there is no more opportunity for someone to come to Christ. You could be a young person in the room, and you think, oh, all this Jesus talk is interesting, but you know, I'm 15, 16 years old, and I got a lot of life ahead of me. The ultimate question of your life, friend, is this. Right now, in this moment, are you a part of God's people, or are you on your way to doom? There is hope for you in turning to Christ. But there is a day when that clock will run down and your fate will be sealed. Turn to Christ while there's time. Christians, preach the gospel while there's time. Boy, it's a convicting thought to go to 
to, to go to my workplace and to realize that there are but two destinies. God's long-suffering has put me in that place as a witness. God's long-suffering has put you in that place to be a witness to those around you. In his long-suffering, he's called us as a church to mobilize, to send missionaries into not just this community, but into the world. We are part of God's mercy mission to the lost. What part are you playing? So with heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to conclude the service. I thank you for just giving me your attention this morning. Thank you for your patience with me as I do my best with this passage of Scripture. But, but I do want to ask that question just one final time. Are, your, are you sure that you belong to Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you have received him as your Savior? If not, I invite you, Jesus says, if you will believe in him, if you will believe on the name of Jesus, you can have eternal life. You say, but I don't understand everything. Neither do I. You just watched me struggle through a really difficult passage. None of us understand it all, but we do understand that God's gift of salvation is free. And if you understand that this morning and you say, you know what, I don't know it all, but I do want Jesus. I do want to believe in Jesus. You can pray in your heart right now and ask Christ to be your Savior. Right where you sit, pray something like this. Say, dear Jesus, I do believe that you came to save me. I know I'm a sinner, but I ask for your forgiveness. I put my trust, Jesus, in you and you alone whether you're in this room or you're watching online, would you put your faith in Christ today? Join the family of the redeemed. Don't wait. Is there anybody that would say, Pastor Ethan, today I made sure. Today I put my trust in Christ. Just, nobody's looking, just hand up, put it up quickly, put it down. Just today I trusted Christ as my Savior. If you did online, just send us a message. Let us know that, yes, I put my faith in Christ today. Christians, as the piano plays, the instruments play, let's just take a moment of prayer. And, and maybe this morning, just pray for God to just burden your heart about eternity. Pray for God to burden your heart about your family members, co-workers, who are not yet a part of this company of God's elect. Pray, as Paul did, he prayed for his brothers and sisters in Israel. Would you pray for your brothers and sisters at your work, your, your, of America, of the world. Would you pray for people to come to Christ, that God would use you? Father, we thank you so much for the free gift of salvation that you've given to us. Lord, we don't deserve it, yet you've given it to us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you offer it to whosoever will. We pray that if someone in here today does not know you as their Savior, that they would today would be the day that they would accept you. Father, for those of us who have put our faith in you, we pray that we would be challenged to share the gospel with those around us. Help us to remember that there are two eternal destinies, one with you forever in heaven and one with without you forever in hell. So Lord, we pray that we'd be burdened and challenged to share the gospel with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, 
If you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.